I was splattered with some of that blood coming over here. It was like a baptism. Ric Flair totally in control of Vince Russo. I got to give Flair credit. He battled two men for a long time in that cage, but there he soaked in blood. It seemed to red suck liquid. the life. Excuse me, red liquid, you're right. Welcome to Keep It 2000, a joke that turned into a wrestling podcast that has revealed itself to be a psychological experiment. Uh, we are proudly a part of the post-wrestling family. I am Brian Mann, and joining me is my fellow test subject, Nate Milton. Nate, I, it has been, it's been a while since we uh, had the listeners board the satellite with us. Yes, we are back and better than ever, brother. You can't have peanut butter without the jelly. You can't have... Oreos without the milk, you can't have Mulder without Scully, you can't have Russo without terrible writing, and so yes, you and I have reunited here on the Satellite of Hate, and uh, it is great to be back on the universe's favorite cross-generational, multiracial, cross-cultural pro-wrestling podcast that talks about the genius of one, Vincent James Russo. Yeah, and, and I don't necessarily want to dwell on our hiatus, because who knows, maybe there's some listeners that... uh months later are binging this whole thing and they're to them it's just episode 22 then episode 23 they're they weren't aware of anything that happened in between but uh but nate this is a big nitro to come back on because this was this was my battle dome invasion <laughs> i was at this show i'm in the second row of this show very proudly and very obviously the entire time so this has been my main event and it has been just eating away the last couple of months having to wait to talk about this episode in particular. Yeah, I think this is the perfect episode to come back on. Not only do we have the return proper of one Bill Goldberg, not only do we have that man called Sting in a glorious moment, uh, in quotations, uh, but we also had a little brother man, a little man in the audience <laughs> surrounded surrounded by Atlanta's finest, and, and we'll get into that a little bit later, man. Next to four shirtless men and my father <laughs> on the other side. You know, Nate, it's not a show. You you and I, it's not a real Nate and Brian podcast until we get to break the champagne bottle on the side with this man. Uh, he's the lead singer of Fucked Up and the host of the upcoming series, The Wrestlers on Viceland. One of our oldest brawling buddies, Damien Abraham, is with us, everybody. Gentlemen, out of a puff of smoke, like chronic, I return. <laughs> Poof. Now, I want to start off by talking about the show The Wrestlers, because you've this has been all you've been doing, really, for the last year. This thing's taken you all over the world. Yeah, it's been a whirlwind. Like, it's brought me everywhere from Japan to Mexico to Kinshasa to the arms of Brian Mann, even, <laughs> at one point. Um and it's been it's been incredible. Like it really, you know, it started as this kind of like pitch that I wanted to give for years to Vice, where you know, wrestling like any other art form is something that is global, and like any other art form, wherever it lands, 
it adapts to the local culture and in some cases helps change the local culture around it and helps, you know, just provide joy and entertainment for underprivileged people. Like it really is the sport of the masses I've come to realize as I've traveled around uh, all these places and, you know, getting to see this kind of bore out has been a dream come true. And really as a wrestling fan, don't tell my wife, but this has been like the greatest year of my fucking life, <laughs> not a day of work at all. <laughs> like, really, like, I don't know why I wasted all those years playing music. I needed to be making TV shows about pro wrestling and getting to watch <laughs> wrestling for a living. Well, I think anything you say on a wrestling podcast, you could be sure your wife will never hear. So that's, that's, that's perfectly okay. But <laughs> there's a tree falling in the forest. <laughs> In a personal, I remember being in um, Orlando and meeting up with you, and you kind of just explaining to me what the show was that you were uh, in the middle of shooting. And I got to say, just from a personal standpoint, this is this is a show about wrestling that I've always wanted uh, to see come around because just getting to to, I mean, you're all over the world with this. When you were sending me pictures of places you'd been, it was insane, and that you can use this as a as a spotlight into that culture just sounds so incredibly fascinating. I know I personally can't wait uh, to to see this thing. Oh, th- thank you. Like, yeah, no, it's like, I don't know. Like, I'm on the show, so I can't say it's my favorite show, but it's my favorite show. Like, <laughs> and that's not because like I have anything to do with me. Like, it's because I was on a TV show that Kota Ibushi's on. Like, I. I, like we went around and I and you know because I'm helping do this thing you know I made sure that this was the all the wrestlers I wanted to meet all the people I wanted to see so like yeah when we did this like we went and shot with Ray Mysterio and we met you know Phoenix and Penta and, and or we went to Japan and we're shooting with like Onita or you know like these are my favorite fucking wrestlers like I'm and I'm hanging out and like just filming with them and documenting something that I've been fascinated by. Like, I think all of us as fans are fascinated by, which is like wrestling is one of the most misunderstood entertainment forms, art forms, sports on the planet. And when you're a fan, you understand it in a way that people that aren't fans could never comprehend. And so to get to be around it as a fan and kind of get a privileged kind of viewpoint. Like I never pretend like I'm in the business or anything, but you know, as a fan kind of like getting a privileged viewpoint kind of behind the curtain a little bit is like a dream come true. And my God, the stuff I got to see in the democratic Republic of Congo, <laughs> me, Kinshasa, that's the real capital of professional wrestling. That is wow. Like that wrestling is next level. Uh, there's, I saw the greatest finish I've ever seen in any wrestling match ever when uh, Lauren Shakira, the greatest wrestler of all time, uh, pulls out a knife and castrates her opponent and eats their genitals. (laughs) We might see that in the mixed tag tournament. Who knows? You know. (laughs) But, uh, but, but, but Damien, enough, enough about your past year in wrestling and what we're going to see here uh, when it premieres here uh, in, in the spring. I want to talk about where you were in the year 2000. Oh, yes. And your relationship with WCW. Were you watching Nitro? Were, were you plugged into this product at the time? I was definitely plugged in. Not as plugged in as I was to WWE, but by this point we had started getting Nitro, I believe first at Tuesday nights, and then I believe at the very end maybe it was head-to-head um, in Canada um, because we have obviously different access to cable channels. So... 
getting a, you know, I was plugged in a little bit. By this point, I'd also dipped out uh, of WCW, and I still was watching WWF, uh, but it wasn't like, I don't know, this was the point where I was kind of like yearning, and just before I fell in completely with, you know, all the tape trading stuff. Um, so, yeah, no, I was not plugged in uh, that much with WCW by this point. <laughs> to get really back to the point, you asked. Um, but if you want any more details on my life, I'm prepared to go on to another monologue. <laughs> now, um, Damien, since you are our neighbor to the north, it only makes sense that uh, yes. we take a look back right now at the Canadian charts. We always like to see what's happening in pop culture the day of this episode. Yes. So, on the day of this Nitro... The Canadian charts and the American charts were pretty much lining up exactly the same, except for this two-week period <laughs> when this Nitro premiered, where the number one song in Canada was It Feels So Good by Sony. Oh, God. I, I, I remember it it feels so good by new edition and I <laughs> I remember uh semisonic uh, closing time I have no idea who in the hell Sonic is I, I think Sonic is cancon and which is something that I don't know how familiar you Americans are with but cancon <laughs> is the Canadian content uh, that radio stations are mandated to play a certain percentage of. <laughs> And so for, you know, obviously some stations, some genres at different time periods, uh, you know, it, it like, you know, they were able to play popular stuff that was popular in America, like Alanis Morissette or Brian Adams. Uh, but unfortunately for other radio stations, uh, they had to play whatever the label was putting out at the time in Canada. So I guess the, the question that some of, some of our listeners would have, Brother Damien, is in the annals of great Canadian pop music or hip-hop. Uh, how would you compare Sonique to uh, the world's favorite informer, Snow? <laughs> Snow, I, I will stand by Snow, because I've heard from many a person that Snow is a really nice person, and also uh, I've heard that uh, he is legit hard. Like, definitely, like, you know, informer was from a place of uh, of being informed. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like he wasn't writing from an uninformed position at all with that song. Um, but yeah, like that, like, and that's also, it's amazing to think, you know, and I always have to bring it back to, to the great Drake on this. And I'm not even a fan, but I just got to bring it back to him. Uh, you know, it's amazing to think of like what Canadian hip hop R&B was prior to uh, the arrival of Drake. And that's, that's snow. <laughs> Well, you know what, guys? <laughs> so the the wait we we we've waited long enough. I think it's time to get into this week's just for me a personal hallmark, Nitro. So first off, I gotta ask you guys. I, I I sent Nate. I sent you a picture. I think I sent you a picture as well, Damien. Were you able to spot me on the hard camera during the show? Well, I was also, because I remember you saying that you were on this show, so before you even sent that photo, I had been looking for you, and I have to admit, I didn't notice it, but I did have the cheat of the sign, which helped me look for it, but yep. you've matured, you know, I'm not just going to say it was an ugly duckling situation, <laughs> but but you, my friend, are some swan these days, let me tell you. <laughs> 
uh, I hadn't quite gotten my, uh, we won't get in it. I had to get a, a corrective nose job because I broke my nose when I was a kid. So my nose is all still kind of crooked and I am very tiny, but thank you. That was very nice to, to, to hear. Well, you're, I would, um, I would, you know, and I'm, I'm saying, I'm saying this as a married person. So please don't think this is any sort of harassment or anything <laughs> like that, but you are a very handsome man. And, uh, you know, and I'm not saying you're an ugly boy by any stretch of the imagination, <laughs> but I just did not. It's not one of those people you're like, oh, that's that guy when he was little. Yeah, for me, like for, for the listeners, I would say the easy key is look for the pink sign and then you go up from the pink sign in the front row and you're gonna, your, your eyes are going to be drawn to two things. And they're either going to be drawn to a young little man, as we're going to call him here to hear forth going forward, uh, holding up his sign, or they're going to be drawn to my favorite player. My MVP of the night, perhaps my silver lining, Brian Man, and that is Buff Bagwell Jr., uh, which is what I'm gonna what I'm gonna call this guy, this uh, this AT alien in the front row who decided to show up with a dress shirt, but decided not to button up the dress shirt, and he's wearing sunglasses inside. Oh my God! Yeah, like it's the audience at this show. Like I was gonna say, you just look. Just, Brian's just right of the dude's armpit, the last armpit on the right. <laughs> Um, and it's, it, but it's like, you look at the audience of this show and it's like a real, it shows you where wrestling was in the early two thousands <laughs> as like this catch point for all people from all walks of life. There's like an elderly couple in the front row. There's a, it's a real mixed bag. When I came here, I came here for one reason, one reason only Bill Goldberg. I came here for you. So, Bill, till you get back here and fight me, I'm going to beat innocent victims. And I'm having fun, fun doing, doing it. it. So our show starts with a recap of the months-long and one-sided build to Goldberg versus Tank Abbott. However, not included is David Arquette pinning Tank Abbott. So this blockbuster return match for Goldberg, with months of build, is happening on tonight's Nitro, and not the pay-per-view that is occurring in six days. We talked about my my youthful transformation. I got to tell you, I went through a change when this match was announced. This is when I became a fucking smart because this is the first time that I was like, that makes no sense. This booking isn't on the level. They couldn't save this thing for six days. I like I guess like, you know, when something's that good, you just want to you want to open it early. That present is that that appealing. You got to open it early in the middle of the show, too. And yeah, and to me, you know, I know this might sound blasphemous to a lot of fans out there, but I take greater issue with this use of Goldberg than even with uh, giving away the Goldberg-Hogan match on Nitro a couple years prior. Because at least that, you know, you're selling out this uh, Georgia Dome, you're, you're having this big night on TV, it, it, it's a means to an end, and it was executed well. Regardless of what you think of the business, it was executed well. Whereas this, as Damien mentioned, it's it's just kind of lost in the middle of the show. It, it feels rushed and haphazard, and there's no real thought put into this. You know that that I can at least give them credit for putting thought into that night with Hogan and Goldberg, and and we didn't get any of that tonight. Yeah, and you also think a couple months back, Nate, we had that Sid versus Tank match that they actually spent all like all night building up that these were like. You know, as laughable as it is, that these are like two heavy hitters, yeah. and oh my goodness, and we have these two titans clash. There was none of that on this episode. No one, mm-hmm. no one seemed to even want to mention that Goldberg was back. There was no buzz around the locker. It didn't seem to affect anyone else but him. 
So earlier today, Tank Abbott, Rick Steiner, and Rick Steiner's fanny pack are shown arriving at the arena. All right, all right, all right, Brian. Brian, I know, I know it's early, but I want to throw a flag on the play. Why does the trope of Wrestler X arriving at the uh, building early, like right before the show starts, why does that exist? Because I get it if you're somebody like Kevin Nash and that's your gimmick. Or if it's a, a commissioner or somebody important showing up in a limo or a Hummer, as a WCW is wont to do. But Tank Abbott and Rick Steiner should not be on the list of people who get to arrive right as the show is starting. But like, Damien, you know, as... as I gotta. If you noticed, they said earlier today. So the funny thing is, is that the heel babyface dynamic in WCW at this point was heels show up earlier in the day, <laughs> babyfaces show up late to work. That is the that's the dynamic they're telling us here. <laughs> well, like that's because the heels are going to take advantage of the free catering. They're going to take advantage. <laughs> well, well, like this example notwithstanding, because I guess they did give us a logical explanation. But just in general, like you know, you're a musician. If you've got so many so, so many bands on a bill. There are certain bands that I would expect, you know, that get to come later. And there are certain bands that your ass got to be there when the show starts. And and why do we why do we have random wrestlers just showing up, arriving at the building as, as the uh, event begins? When we went on tour with the Arcade Fire one time, we were late every single day of the tour. Like every single day to the point where we were loading into these <laughs> stadiums as the buildings were full. Full, like oh. people sound checking on stage in front of a full house oh, waiting for no. the arcade fire. So, uh, you know, that hierarchy doesn't always apply on who gets to show up early <laughs> versus late. So so what you're saying is you guys were the, the Kevin Nash of, of the musical world. I like I love to think of fucked up as the Kevin Nash of the musical world, actually. Like that is really I'm the big sexy <laughs> of punk, I think. <laughs> and I put as about as much work in <laughs> these days too. <laughs> Tony, Mark, and Scott welcome us to the Phillips Arena in Atlanta, Georgia. Eric Bischoff, Vince Russo, and R&B Security make their way out. Bischoff welcomes us to the wrestling empire that he built. Bischoff then announces that Scott Steiner will face Vampiro, and Kevin Nash will run the New Blood Gauntlet tonight. And if Nash loses in the gauntlet, he loses his title shot at the Great American Bash. So... I guess Eric was just totally cool with canceling the main event for that Sunday's pay-per-view, if need be. <laughs> In the interest of fairness, though, Bischoff says that Jeff Jarrett will face Sting tonight. Russo then gets the mic and says that his eight months living in Atlanta has been the worst eight months of his life. Russo points to a large steel cage above the ring and says that he and Ric Flair are going to Space Mountain tonight. Clearly, he's not aware of what Space Mountain means. Uh, I was thinking... <laughs> I wish they were going to fuck. I would. I was really hoping they would have sex with each other. Like, I was really hoping that's where this was going to culminate. <laughs> that would have been way more entertaining. Bischoff says he's going to follow Russo's lead and is going to take the hardcore title from Terry Funk tonight. Bischoff then addresses Goldberg. Bischoff says that Goldberg screwed up his plans to take out Kevin Nash last week. Goldberg is then shown watching in the back, but it receives zero reaction because it wasn't shown to the live crowd. Russo then runs down Goldberg as Bischoff tries to get him to stop. Goldberg then begins screaming at the TV he's watching. Russo ends his promo by saying he has two words for Goldberg. Spear this, baby, which is three words. Goldberg's music hits and the heels flee the ring. Goldberg makes his way out and takes out R&B security as Goldberg chants fill the arena. So, kind of what we've gotten used to here, uh, Russo and uh, 
Bischoff come out, they get all the heat for themselves, they explain a lot of the matches that they're not actually in. But the big difference tonight is that both of these guys are actually wrestling. They have finally uh, <laughs> gone from Booker to on-screen to mouthpiece to just full-fledged professional wrestlers. Uh, this is... Um, this really is the beginning of the end of these guys, just their ego being totally out of check. Once again, we get the the dichotomy of, of Vincent Russo because I hate to sound like a broken record, Brian. You know, you can go back and listen to the other episodes of Keep It 2000. But I, I think I've been saying this for most of the past few episodes since the reboot. Vince Russo as a character, pretty great. Like, I, I love Vince Russo promos. Like, I, I, I hate to say it. I, I sound like somebody who has uh, had to come to Jesus moment. I've I'm, I'm realized I'm an alcoholic or, or I'm, I'm some type of an addict. And, and it's like, yes, my name is Nate. And uh, I love Vince Russo promos. And, and you know, the, <laughs> the, bit of, the bit about John Rocker, uh, you know, and I'm a New Yorker. So, I, you know, I'll, I'll knock you out. Uh, you know, my... my uh, He's like, you must be higher than your ERA if you think you can take me. Like, those are good lines. But in the context of this show and, and structuring this show and, and getting us involved in the storylines and whatnot, that's where he falls woefully short. So it's like I, I keep having this this uh, ebb and flow, Damien, that you know I, I really enjoy Vince Russo's character work. And even Bischoff wasn't bad here. But the, the story that they put themselves in isn't very good. Yeah, like I, I like if if the idea behind a heel is to not be cool and not become beloved by the audience, but to to be someone that you want to see get beaten up, Vince Russo's always been one of the best heels in wrestling to me. Like one of the most legitimate heels in wrestling that I think you know could still get over if you put him. Like as you say, he's amazing on that microphone. He can talk. And by the end of this, you want to see someone come out and punch him in the face really hard. Like, <laughs> just you really hope that happens. I love this segment because Goldberg invented FaceTime. And also, <laughs> I, was left, I, I was left wondering, like, who trained Vince Russo? Like, who was, like, the person who's like, all right, Vince, I'm going to break you in right now. And granted, it's probably in a Vince Russo shoot interview, so I could get that answer. But I'm not gonna watch that. <laughs> I'm guessing he probably went to the power plant. Uh, uh, Paul Orndorff probably uh, threw him around a little bit. <laughs> and that's how he got. Like it's like okay, it's like, like really realistically, like you know, like I've heard it takes about a year to get to the point where you can go in the ring and put on you know a a not great, not good match by any stretch of the imagination, but a match, you know, from training. Like at most, he was trained for what, like three weeks. Four weeks, oh, and he's best. like fucking at main best. eventing this. Show. Yeah, he's been on TV <laughs> for a month at this point. Yeah, um, in the back, Bischoff yells at Russo for taunting Goldberg. Jeff Jarrett comes in. By the way, he is the world champion. Pissed off that he's facing Sting tonight. Billy Kidman and Tori Wilson then come in, demanding that Horace and Hulk face each other tonight. A heated Bischoff grants his wish. Whatever, whatever. I don't care what you do. I don't care what they do. Just you get, it done. Get, done. get it done. Get it done. Where are you going? Our opening match is for the tag team championship as Perfect Sean defend their titles against Chronic. Yes, Sean Stasiak and Chuck Palomo are now the champions after defeating Chronic by DQ on Thunder. Uh, Ernest Miller had created some sort of stipulation where the titles could change on a DQ, and now the heels have the belts. So this match starts with all four men trading punches. 
Chronic uh, takes control early, and Clark hits the meltdown on Palumbo. The cat then walks down the ramp. Adam sets up for a pile driver on Sean, but then Chuck comes in and lays him out with a really sloppy sidekick. Adams eventually gets the lukewarm tag, and Brian Clark cleans house. Cat walks in the ring and threatens the ref while everyone else brawls around the ring. The cat then puts referee Billy Silverman into a chicken wing and forces him to count out Chronic, which, had he just been doing his job, would have happened anyway because everyone did legitimately stay outside the ring for more than 10. Um, the cat then gives the victory to the, heels to the heel champs on a count out. Afterwards, Chronic goes to lay out Miller with the high times, but Perfection makes the save. Um, I gotta say, given the people involved... This was probably the best sloppy match these guys could have had. The That ridiculous finish didn't make any sense, but when it comes to uh, Sean Stasiak, Chuck Palumbo, Brian Adams, and Brian Clark, this wasn't bad for two and a half minutes. It's really depressing to think this is the best match on the show. It's it's in the top three. It's in the top <laughs> yeah. three. I don't know if I'd say it's the top, but it's in the top three. Like, I didn't know when I was watching it that I was watching, you know, arguably one of the best matches on the show. <laughs> well, by you the way, without looking, at, without looking at your notes, how many matches do you think were on this two-hour wrestling show? Oh, my God. I don't know. A thousand? Like, <laughs> okay. I think, uh, I'm going to say, because I, I was watching this on the WWE Network, and, you know, the dots are kind of your your markers <laughs> for uh, for the, the number of matches or segments or whatever. And there were a hell of a lot of match, uh, dots on this show, so I'm gonna say nine matches. There was ten matches on this show, guys. <laughs> wow. So, so yes, only there ten you go. matches. Ten matches. Wow. So That's yeah, crazy. <laughs> just a lot of segments. Because I was gonna say, like, yeah. when you watch when you watch Raw, it feels slow, and it's three hours. This felt too fast, you know, for its time. Oh yeah, and I mean, and the number of matches that won't lead to anything on the show that weekend, like. Even this match, this tag team championship match, um, you would presume maybe we're building up to like a no DQ uh, street fight maybe between these two teams for the tag titles. Nope, Sean Stasiak's facing uh, G.I. Bro, who had zero interactions on this show and didn't mention <laughs> each other's name once. Uh, you, uh, you, you do have to give them credit for one thing, Brian. What's, what, what is that? <laughs> and that is attention to detail because before this this uh, show, Chuck Palumbo's nickname was the main event. Yep. Not and living tonight, up. Chuck Palumbo was simply the event. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you got to give him credit for being realistic. Like, yeah, he's not a he's not a main event. He's not a big deal, but he's a deal. <laughs> the opening event. I. Uh, <laughs> I mean. We kind of like complain when WWE does just like the very by the numbers booking that's very predictable. But could we not have just at this point done like uh, do MIA versus uh, like like four members of MIA versus four members of New Blood, and then you could put in the Billy Kidman thing from earlier, and you can put in the Filthy Animal. You you can like and you can get Perfection in there if you really want to, or maybe it's like Chronic and two members of MIA versus like Perfection and two members of the. It's not the most intriguing, but you're able to do multiple things at once, whereas. We had 10 matches that ultimately, like, maybe two of them actually achieved something long-term in terms of storyline. Yeah, I think there's a there's a happy medium. Like, there's a sweet spot in between being too predictable and then just being random for randomness' sake. And I think 
that Vince Russo unfortunately does not know where that sweet spot is. Uh, maybe he hadn't ridden Space Mountain enough. <laughs> but we did we did not achieve that sweet spot uh, on tonight's episode. In the locker room, Billy Cuckman yells at his girlfriend, Tori Wilson, for messing with his career. Major Gunson runs in and asks Billy to ease up on Tori. Calm down. You don't have to treat her like that. Mind your business, you dumb bitch. Get out of here. Maybe it's, you know, living in these modern times with our modern sensibilities, but uh, I don't wear pearls, but I, I clutched. I clutched for pearls when I, when I heard Billy Kidman call this woman a bitch on, on national TV. It's a very different product. It is. <laughs> Elsewhere, Pamela approaches Scott Steiner and Kevin Nash as they enter the building. She asks Kevin about his gauntlet match later. Nash responds with a joke about being late for work. Pam, I got a question for you. Is Goldberg here yet? So that means I'm the last one here, right? Yes. My gimmick's alive. I'm the last one in the building. <laughs> he doesn't seem too concerned, does he? So I think this solidifies our babyface heel dynamic when it comes to uh, to the tardiness policy. <laughs> in the MIA's locker room, General Rection calls the group to attention. Major Guns runs in, crying about Billy Kidman yelling at her because every woman on the show has to be depicted as a 12-year-old. G.I. Bro then says the Misfits should kick Kidman's ass tonight. Elsewhere... Goldberg is talking to Nash and Steiner. He promises to kick Tank's ass. There's a theme if you've noticed. We go back to the arena where the MIA comes down and G.I. Bro calls out Billy Kidman. You want to run around here and boss around women? I tell you what, get your scrawny little ass out here right now and I'll show you how to treat a woman, sucker. But hold up a second. Nate, I got to use one from you. I got to throw a flag on this play. Didn't Kidman already say that he had to, he had to go get ready for his match. So are, are we led to believe this was an impromptu call-out from Booker T, or was this a pre-sanctioned match that Billy Kidman knew about ahead of time? Yeah, that's the thing, because Billy's whole beef with uh, Tori was that, you know, she was in his way, and he needed to get ready, and he wanted a match. Now, I, I don't... This, this is how crazy this show is and how quickly things move. Like, I don't recall specifically if he wanted the match with Booker or if he was lobbying for a different match, but... It either way, like whatever Billy's plan was, it didn't come to fruition. And then on the misfit side of things, I just found it funny that we saw the the kind of power dynamic within the misfits in action because you've got general erection, you know, having these guys lined up, and it was good to see Lash LaRue again. That that made my heart flutter a little bit. Uh but then Booker T just comes in from out of, out of nowhere and just yells at them to do the exact same thing that uh, General Rection wanted them to do, and they jumped when Booker said it. So I I don't know if, if Booker is like the, the Navy SEAL of this team, or is he like the, the commando? Like, what's his role? No, 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 no. Where Where's the, the, the... Nate, I think it's a little more simpler than that. I think General Rection is the mom, and Booker T is the dad. Ah. Like, hey, well, well, hey, listen, you know, like, yeah, you need to listen to mom, but... Every once in a while, G.I. Bro's going to come around. He's going to crack that, that belt, and you're going to know, okay, we really need to sit down and be quiet in the back of the car for a while. Oh, see, now I just want a vignette where the misfits are, you know, they're, they're in a Humvee or something, some <laughs> military-esque vehicle driving to the arena, and, and you got uh, Chavo and Lash fighting in the back, and Booker's like, hey, don't make me turn this Jeep around. <laughs> I, like, I love Booker T. He's one of my favorite wrestlers at this point, and to see him in this... Is was just like oh god, 
come on. And then, like, to see, like, out of anyone, like, you know, and you can talk about other WCW guys, but I think he's, like, the guy that went to WWE and had that second act that no one else was able to do. Yeah. And then went to TNA and still went back to WWE and had, like, a third or fourth act by that point, uh, which is, like, you know, seemingly unheard of. Yeah, I mean, because I guess you had, like, some guys like uh, like Ray... um... I really just Booker and Ray are the only people I can kind of think of right now that after that WCW purchase, they kind of went over and did well. But Booker was definitely the only guy that came out of the invasion, yeah. I would yeah, say. Sorry, yeah, you're right. Uh, Ray. Yeah, because I was going to say, like, guys like Eddie or, or Ray, you know, they, they were brought up at different times. But from that invasion bunch, Booker, to me, is the only one. You know, other guys had long careers, but Booker's the only one that had, you know, those those highlight moments. From WCW, I mean, like, Rob Van Dam did okay. but And like, it's still working there to this day. And still working there. And he went to TNA, too. Like, he's left them and come back. And, you know, and everyone says how that puts you in terrible standing and stuff like that. But he still kind of found, you know, he's still that guy who's, like, on TV every week. So Kidman comes out with the filthy animals. On commentary, Tony reminds us that G.I. Bro is facing Sean Stasiak at the pay-per-view, something you could never have guessed watching this episode. Kidman promises a war and storms into the ring. These two start with a string of reversals. Bro then props Kidman's legs up as though he's uh, preparing him for the shattered dreams in the corner and calls Guns in. Gun teases, kicking Kidman in the nuts, but Tori Wilson walks in. With the ref busy getting Guns out of the ring, Tori Wilson then low blows her boyfriend Kidman. Billy no-sells it, though, and the announcers say that he was wearing a cup, but the cameras totally missed it, so who knows. This allows Bro to hit the bookend for the win. I what this match? Why was this match so short? These two clearly had really great chemistry. They went like two and a half minutes. It had a dumb bullshit finish. I would say of everything on this card, this was the best pairing of talent. And for this to be given, like, for this is what we got in return. It was, it was a real shame. Yeah, we've seen this pairing before. You know, this isn't the first time these two have been uh, matched up in the year 2000. And every time, it just goes to illustrate the different levels people are at at this stage in their careers. And Kidman and Booker, while not being at the top of the card, they always are out there and and they're giving an effort. They're trying. You know, they, they, they they aren't guys that are phoning it in at this point. And it's good to see. It's just unfortunate that their screen time is so limited. And when they are on screen, it's in angles like Booker T with Harlem Heat 2000 or Kidman fighting with Horace Hogan over Tory. Like, they're they're not using the talents to the best of their abilities. Nate, I just remembered that those two had that feud earlier in the year where they became a tag team. I t- when you said they faced each other this year, I totally blanked until you said that. And you're, you're right. They actually had a, a few pretty good matches <laughs> that made no sense but ended with them being a, being a tag team. Yeah, I, I think you were still mesmerized by uh, Big T at that point. <laughs> you know, he was backstage drinking milk and wearing pink polos and all that good stuff. Oh, man. <laughs> R.I.T. Gone too soon. <laughs> I got nothing to add on this one. I was like, yeah, like, I think I'm with you. It was super short. It was, I like, it's just one of those one of those things where, you know, as a fan, and this is what I was saying, like, I was checked out of this product at this time, because as a fan of wrestling, you weren't getting a lot of wrestling on these shows at this point. So back from break, hardcore champion Terry Funk comes out with a steel chair. During his entrance, we are shown highlights of the stellar run he has had as champion. From pitting Ralphus in a kitchen, to wearing a gorilla costume, to almost being set on fire Vampiro, and 
nearly getting his head kicked off by a horse on last week's Thunder. But look out, everyone. It's our hardcore legend. (laughs) So out comes his opponent, Eric Bischoff with the cat. Cat throws a chair at Funk and gives him a cartwheel kick. Bischoff then does a nunchuck demonstration, which allows Funk to recover and lay out the cat with a trash can. Bischoff and Funk then have a duel with the nunchucks in the trash can. Funk hits Bischoff, but the cat grabs him and carries him to the back. Funk pursues, and we go to the annou- and we go to the announcers in disbelief. So, this match is still going on, but for some reason, the cameras are not going to follow them. Instead, the Nitro Girls music hits, and out comes Miss Hancock. Totally unprovoked, Miss Hancock starts dancing, as I'm sure 12-year-old me was pretending to be confused in the audience. <laughs> the music abruptly stops, and out comes Mike Awesome and Kimberly. Kim accuses Hancock of stealing her spotlight and that her secretary stripper look went out in 1993, which Mark Madden confirms. Kim then grabs Hancock's clipboard and hits her in the back with it. Having reclaimed the spotlight, Kim decides to leave. Hancock gets up and tells Kim to get her fat ass in the ring. Tony reminds us that somewhere the hardcore title match is still happening. (laughs) Kim says she will give Hancock a fat lip later and walks away. Conveniently, as if on cue, Terry Funk and Eric Bischoff emerge from the back and continue their hardcore title match. But first, let's talk about this exchange, guys. Um, <laughs> so, Nate, you and I are fans of Kim. Uh, she's been a pretty good performer, and, and she's cutting great uh, promos. She's getting really good heat on herself. She's not very good at conveying basic information because there were certain things I think she was supposed to get out that she didn't. Um, yeah, instead it was just her repeating how important she is over and over again until she kind of stumbled onto what her point was supposed to be, which was ultimately, uh, attacking Hancock and then leaving. Okay, Brian, man, but would you criticize Picasso for letting a few drops of paint fall on the floor? (laughs) Would you criticize Michael Jordan for missing a free throw here or there? Would you criticize Willie Mays for striking out every once in a while? No, Brian, man, and that's because you have to recognize greatness when it is in your face. And that is Kimberly Page on these nitros. Like, this was a sandwich of maybe my favorite segment on the show in between two of the worst, that being the hardcore portions. Like, it was like the best smoked turkey you've ever eaten in your life, sandwiched between two pieces of three-month-old stale Wonder Bread. And I was like, I hated everything involving Funk and Bischoff, but, you know, lack of information uh, notwithstanding, I am a fan of, of Kimberly Page, and I, I enjoyed everything about her segment of this, except for, and this is where I will take uh, issue with the Kimberly Page segment, at the end, Kimberly Page and Mike Awesome are ostensibly part of the New Blood, right? Right. Eric Bischoff, the leader of the New Blood, is wheeled in a wheelbarrow past them. Why didn't Mike Awesome do anything? Yeah, it's just, and it's a hardcore match. <laughs> well, they're existing in different universes. You know, like there's multiple universes. It's like a multiverse at this point in WCW. <laughs> and so he couldn't see Eric Bischoff <laughs> and Terry Funk's wrestling match as it was taking place because they're in a different place. They're in different dimensions. Different dimension, exactly. <laughs> it's There's multiple timelines at work right now <laughs> in WCW. It's, I thought where you were going there, Nate, with the uh, comparison to Picasso and Michael Jordan with uh, Vince Russo because I would say that Vince Russo – is almost like it's like free jazz, like the way he writes. Like it's just like coming at you from all sides. Like and backstage, it must be like, it must be like a, a Vegas show. Like okay, you go, you go, and now this act, you uh, you guys, go on, you you you. 
all right, you go now. It must feel like, <laughs> oh, Broadway show back there. It must be so lively in their gorilla <laughs> position. So Terry Funk wheelbarrows Eric Bischoff back into the ring. Funk DDTs Bischoff on a chair, and we cut to the back because this segment needed more people. Vince Russo sends out the Mamelukes to save Eric. Funk gets on the mic and threatens to give Bischoff a bird's eye view of his wrinkled old ass. In the crowd, my father can be seen getting his camera out. <laughs> can we wait, can we stop and go back for a second? What was your dad's like vibe on WCW in general in the year two thousand? Um, I think he he you know it was something I was really into. It was something that he and I kind of shared. Um, uh, my, my, my dad and I, um, I wasn't living in Atlanta at the time. So I would, whenever I'd come down to Atlanta, we'd always kind of like sync it up with when, uh, a nitro was going to be in town. So it was always something that we shared that we talked about. So I, I, I think he liked that it was something we could bond over in terms of the, uh, yeah. the morals of the product. I don't think he was the biggest fan of it, but I think he enjoyed that it was something the two of us shared. Uh, see now, now again, I'm, I'm getting a vision in my head, much like the, the previous Misfits in action uh, vignette. Now I just want to see vignettes of Brian and his dad just watching Ralphus and Terry Funk and the Kiss Demon and in the background <laughs> and the cats in the cradle and the silver spoon and little boy blue and the man in the moon. I had to watch Basic Instinct with my aunt one time and I think it would be more awkward to watch WCW with her at this point. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> <laughs> so Funk puts Bischoff in the stink face position and pulls out his ass. The Mamelukes hit the ring and beat down on Funk, so the stink face never actually happened. Johnny the Bull slams Funk and sets a chair on him. Big Vito then hits an elbow drop from the top rope onto the chair. Johnny sets a can lid on Funk and Vito hits it with a broomstick, which Scott Hudson calls a Vincent Hurst ball bat. Vito hits an impaler on Funk and places... Bischoff on Terry for the win, making Eric Bischoff the WCW Hardcore Champion. <laughs> Sensing they've made a mistake, the cameras immediately cut backstage <laughs> to a shot of Bill Goldberg. Now, here's a, how the fuck has this is this a payoff for Terry Funk's comical reign? You you assume we were at least like getting all of this babyface heat on him for like okay maybe a heel will slay the legend or something like that. No, we just put it on, on Eric Bischoff. And if you thought this was supposed to get heat on Eric Bischoff, surprise, surprise, he vacates the title on Thunder. It's just like when fucking uh, uh, Oklahoma got the title. It's like you build all this up, you put a belt on a non-performer for them to just drop it. So no, uh, you just do the storyline and then never get what you're supposed to get out of it, which is hopefully someone people will pay money to see wrestle. Um at the time, I thought this was ridiculous, sitting there as a 13-year-old. As a 31-year-old, I still think it's ridiculous. This might be the most offensive thing I've ever seen in pro wrestling. <laughs> Terry Funk, the guy that gave the world so much in terms of professional wrestling, gave his body. Yes. You know, and just to see him pinned, like to know, and I know, obviously, wrestling is what it is, but to know that he was pinned by Eric Bischoff at one point is like, oh, it's what, what a disgrace that this company was at this point. This entire Terry Funk run, you know, has been abysmal. Mm -hmm. This entire Terry Funk run has been a misuse of this legend. And obviously, Terry Funk in the year 2000 is not Terry Funk from the 70s or the 80s or even the 90s. But there was value in Terry Funk. 
and you wasted it with this watered-down hardcore division where he's fighting Norman Smiley and Ralphus and the Mama Lukes and now Eric Bischoff, and, and you're wasting... And, and let's not forget the uh, Dustin Rhodes match where Terry Funk had a chicken on his hand, a raw chicken on his hand. Like, you're... You're, you're using this guy who should be your legend, who should be, you know, the the guy that you bring in once a month or, you know, space it out even a bit more than that. You know, he should be a special attraction, but instead you made him a comedy act. And, and it's not even that funny. So, uh, yeah, I, I agree with you, Damien. This was uh, this was the culmination to a, a bad run for uh, One Brother Funk. And, like, the fact you have Mike Awesome and Terry Funk at this time period in the ring at the same time and they're not interacting with each other, let alone, they're not fucking wrestling with each other. Like, these are two of my favorite wrestlers ever, and the stuff they did, you know, in FMW, uh, you know, as the uh, Funk Masters of Wrestling, but, like, it's it's incredible that how misused these talents were, which you've already said. So, you know, I don't know, just, I'm fuming. There was one tiny, 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 one tiny iota uh, of, of a bright spot in, in this match. Uh, are you going to say Terry Funk's ass? <laughs> <laughs> that, was a, that was a dark, dark spot. Uh, the stories that ass could tell, though. <laughs> oh, man. <It's laughs> the, the one bright spot came from the most unlikely of places, and that was the character of Mark Madden. Oh. Who, as Terry Funk is wheeling Bischoff back to the ramp, Actually gets off a pretty good zinger where he's like, uh, Terry Funk's first match was a burning bush match against Moses and he went over. <laughs> like, you know what? I, I like that, Mark, man. I I'll let you give you a pass this week. Outside, a long white limo arrives at the building and out comes Ric Flair with his son Reed and his wife Beth. In the arena, U.S. champ Scott Steiner enters with his freaks. Steiner gets on the mic and talks about going to Tongue and Groove, which is a pretty shitty nightclub in Atlanta that I have been to. <laughs> So we went down to this club called Tongue and Groove, and this freak comes up to me and says she's been looking for love in all the wrong places. Tongue and Groove? That's a hell of a lot of things to say to me, so I look in her eyes, and I say, I might not know how to love you, but I damn know sure how to touch you. So why don't you quit lusting it and let me bust it? So I took her back to my place, and I gave her this feeling that I knew she hit the ceiling and she called me the big bad booty daddy. During the story, Shakira and Medeja cheer for Steiner, so I guess that's their kink. I guess that's what they're into. Well, they're freaks. Because they're freaks. They just like hearing about it. They're freaks. They're like freaks, yeah. <laughs> Madden calls Steiner quotable, and Tony agrees that he is, quote, unique. Vampiro comes out carrying a gas can and a blowtorch, Steiner shoves Vampiro in the corner and lays him in, and lays into him with kicks. Vamp reverses a whip and misses a spinning heel kick. Steiner then follows up with a suplex and a press slam. Steiner whips Vampiro in the corner, but he runs into a boot. These two then brawl around the ring for a little bit. Steiner attacks Vampiro with a chair and puts Vampiro through the announce table. No DQ is called. Vamp spends no time selling the moves, though, as he lands an unprotected chair shot back to Steiner. Steiner returns the favor by not selling anything and sends Vampiro into the ring. Steiner sends Vamp to the top turnbuckle and tries a suplex, but Vamp knocks him off. Vamp then hits a spinning heel kick from the top. Vampiro grabs the blowtorch and lays out Scott with it. 
Medeja then nails Vamp with a top rope dive. Vampiro then chases Medeja out of the ring and threatens to set her on fire on the rampway. Sting appears from behind and attacks him with a bat. Sting forces Vampiro back in the ring where Steiner hits a belly-to-belly suplex and locks in the recliner for the win. Russo standards, a clean finish. (laughs) After the match, R&B security rush the ring, but Sting and Steiner clear them all out. Um, Probably the best match on the show. It was an Iron Man at five and a half minutes, and at least it did something to build to a pay-per-view match this weekend. Man, I... I must be channeling my inner John Pollock, or maybe I've received some of his sensibilities by osmosis since we're now all part of the post-wrestling family, but you mentioned the unprotected chair shots, and the unprotected headshots were a lot of, uh, were uh, many, were were legion on this show, and it just got to me after a while. Like, we had uh, Funk hit Bischoff over the head with the trash can. We had an unprotected chair shot in this match. We're going to have a couple more later on in this show. And it's bad enough that they're unprotected. But what makes it even worse, in my opinion, is yeah. they're also disposable. Like, they don't mean anything. Like, you, these should be used to great effect, and they're not. Uh, but that that uh, notwithstanding, I thought this match was, you know, it it it. It was a match, uh, much like Chuck Palumbo. It wasn't a main event. It was an event. Uh, this wasn't a great match, but it was a match nonetheless. Uh, I still like seeing Scott Steiner in this era. Uh, his promos make no sense, but they're always entertaining. And I have to give credit to uh, one of the minor players in this, and that is Shakira. Uh, you know, not all heroes wear capes. Not all stars get a spotlight. But Shakira's reactions. Go back and watch this, this uh, clip, folks. Shakira's reactions to Scott Steiner's story are pretty hilarious. Um, yeah, like I, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm with you guys. I think this is probably the best match on the show. I'm also much like Nate, a massive fan of Sting. So any Sting is fine by me. Um, and so yeah, that's that's kind of where I was at. Well, okay, I'm gonna call on both of you guys to defend the way Sting was booked on this show then, because I got some issues when we get to that later. <laughs> I will say, though, I, I did like the move with Sting, because, you know, normally if somebody does a does a run-in, you know, they're, they're coming full speed. I liked how Sting was just cool, you know, just taking his sweet time, and then just, he didn't hit Vampiro full strength. He tapped him on the head with the bat, <laughs> and then when Vamp turned around, then Sting went to town. Like I, I like just the, the casual nature of that run-in. Back from Brink, Tank Abbott makes his way out. Yep. Goldberg's big return match did not main event this show. (laughs) Clearly, WCW wanted Goldberg's big return to go head-to-head with the start of Raw. Well, that plan didn't work, as this Nitro, with Goldberg's big return, actually did a lower number than the previous week's episode. (laughs) Oof. So, just throwing it out there, what number do you think this episode did in the ratings? Uh, like a a point, a two point three. <laughs> Honestly, if if they've been watching Nitro like we've been watching Nitro, I'm gonna go lower than that. I'm gonna say uh, one point eight. This Nitro did a two point eight, down from a three point oh the week before, and Raw did a five point nine. So I think we can clearly say <laughs> who the victor was <laughs> this week. That's crazy, though, that this this show did a 2.8. Oh that's that's, yeah. that's mind-boggling. Because there's so much, like, 
there's so much big shit on this show, though. Like, that's, but it was all hot shotted, so people didn't know it was going to happen. Like, they didn't really do a good job of letting you know, hey, it's going to be Ric Flair and Russo are going to have a match together. Or like, I mean, so many big things that happened on the show were either announced a week ago or announced offhanded in this episode. Like, Miss Hancock having her first match, you actually could have built to that. Or like, Horace Hogan versus Hulk Hogan. Like, you could have actually built to these things if you'd invested just a little bit of promotion in it. So Goldberg gets his classic ex- gets his classic entrance while the announcers put over how evenly booked these two monsters are. The crowd goes insane for Goldberg as Tank misses a swing and eats a super kick. Goldberg takes down Tank and sets up for the spear, but Rick Steiner runs in and hits Goldberg with a chair. No DQ is called. Tank puts his foot on Goldberg as Rick forces Mickey J to count, but Goldberg kicks out at two. As the heels beat on Goldberg, the Wolfpack music hits and Kevin Nash saunters from out of the crowd. Nash pulls out Rick Steiner as Goldberg spears Abbott. Goldberg then hits the jackhammer for the win. You gotta give it to Vince Russo. He somehow overbooked a two-minute Goldberg squash match. <laughs> but on a positive, man, did Bill Goldberg seem like such a bigger star than each and every other one of the fucking jokers on this television show. And I'm including Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan in that. This guy seems so huge, which makes the decision that they would make six days later involving his character even more baffling. Is it the best entrance ever in wrestling? You know that full Goldberg entrance with the cops and everything Ooh. and the security? Like, I would say yes. I think so, too. Because I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of the Taker. I'm not a huge fan of the Taker entrance, uh, personally. So I would say, yeah, I would say Goldberg. Yeah, I'd say Goldberg or Ultimate Warrior. Yeah. yeah it, it's definitely up there. What always blew my mind at the time and still now is when you saw how massively over this guy was and how, how this company was just struggling, how did they never just put the belt back on this guy? Like, he never got a second title reign. Like, that seems like the easiest fucking thing to me. And if I hear this crowd, I'm going to him as champion as quick. Like, it's not the most inspired idea, but it's the most obvious one from just one night of this guy being back. Well, there's no good reason why they didn't put the belt on Goldberg. But if you look at this match, it tells you everything you need to know about their booking of this man. Because... Not only was this a match in the middle of the show, not only was this a match that didn't get the the proper hype that it deserved. Like, honestly, and I know, you know, you don't want to be throwing around money like it's uh, going out of style. But if there was ever a time to give a call to your boy Michael Buffer, mm, why not yeah. now uh, for, for this match to, to give it a little bit more oomph? Uh, the other thing was the way Goldberg was presented, you know, to have – a situation where he has to be saved, quote-unquote, by Kevin Nash. Like, that didn't make Goldberg look stronger to me. Like, in fact, it made him look a bit weaker, in my estimation. Uh, you know, I thought, if you're going to do the double team with Rick Steiner, okay, fine. I wouldn't have done it, but okay, I guess you have to if you're Vince Russo. But why not let Goldberg take both of those guys out? You know, let them get a couple licks in, and then Goldberg just gets rid of both of them and comes out looking strong because, like you said, the crowd was so into him. And after this, you can kind of tell, like, the crowd's still there, but the energy isn't the same after this match. Maybe it was like an Andre the Giant thing. Like, he was so over, they didn't think he needed the title, and they had to use the title to get future stars over, like David Arquette and Vince Russo. 
Well, they certainly got the champion over on this episode. That's for sure. <laughs> in the locker room, Goldberg thanks Kevin Nash for having his back. Pamela Paulshuk then attempts to interview Kim, who just takes the mic away. Kim says that she and Austin will take care of Hancock later tonight. She really needs to find herself another little gawky teenager like herself to go out and back her up because Mr. Muscles here and I are going to go wipe that preppy little smirk off her face. Excuse me, I have to go change for my match. WCW world champion Jeff Jarrett then comes out. And man, was this guy the total polar fucking opposite of Bill Goldberg. Nate, I, I think it took this little sabbatical to really uh, understand <laughs> this guy. There is nothing about Jeff Jarrett that says a world champion on this roster, on any, like it is mind blowing when he, he's not, he, they don't position him as a world champion. He wasn't, he, he could have just standing around in the opening segment would have been something But this guy comes out and other th- this fucking television prop that's around his waist, nothing else says world champion about this guy. Scott Steiner's a bigger world G.I. Bro looks more like a world champion than this guy on this well, show. Well, that's why you couldn't put it on Goldberg. You needed that to signify that this is the champion. You needed that identifier for him. <laughs> what's, what's your problem with the Cho Cho Chosen one? I mean, he's got a great theme song. You know, it reminds you of that old Simpsons episode where uh, Ralph gave Lisa the Valentine's Day card, I Choo Choo Choose You. <laughs> And there's a choo-choo train on it. But, uh, no, Jeff Jarrett, and, and I've said this before on this show, Jeff Jarrett, to me, is the perfect B player. He's the utility guy. You know, he can do everything really well, but nothing great. And I think if Jeff Jarrett is your mid-card champion, that's a pretty strong uh, champion right there. But if he's your world champion, if he's your top guy, you might run into some problems because there is a ceiling to where Jeff Jarrett can take you. You know, I think that he's a fine performer, but... For most of his career, I think he's been put in positions that were just a bit out of his reach in terms of what he could bring to a show. Yeah, like I think I think Jeff Jarrett's like one of the smartest guys in wrestling because he's another guy that's managed to have kind of like decent runs everywhere he's been. And I think you guys are, you know, he's he's like he is the B player, you know, but he's managed to be a main event guy in several places now. So he's one of the smartest guys in wrestling somehow. And all it took was uh, having your dad as the booker or being best friends with the promoter or owning the company. That's all it took. That's all it took. (laughs) Play along. He's a genius. Don't hate. He's a genius. (laughs) So Sting makes his entrance and gets attacked uh, by Jeff Jarrett uh, at the start of the bell. Sting reverses and whips Jarrett into the corner but misses a Stinger splash. Sting then counters a dropkick into a powerbomb. Sting tries for the deathlock but Jarrett kicks him first. Jarrett then beat Sting with a steel chair on the entrance ramp. Again, no DQ is called. Sting clotheslines Jarrett into the ring. Sting then rolls up Jeff and gets a three count. Sting rolls him up, one, two, The bell is rung and Stinger celebrates with the title. But wait! Eric Bischoff comes out and says this was a non-title match. Nate, retroactively, how much heat did Eric Bischoff get with you in this moment? Oh, he was the biggest heel on this show. I mean, you had Sting with uh, one of the one of the more clever spots I think I've seen. You know, it's a simple spot. You know, he did the uh, sunset flip, 
And Jarrett, you know, did the old move of punching the guy, but then he just stands there and Sting just reaches up and pulls him back down for the pin. And I, I my heart was filled with joy both in 2000 and current day uh, because I had forgotten about this dusty finish. And uh, when Bischoff came back out, you know, I was about to call you. I was going to text you and tell you this was the best <laughs> episode of Nitro that we've reviewed thus far. But uh, my, my hopes and dreams were uh, quickly uh, torn asunder, as it were. Yeah, somehow of the 16 different title changes that have happened so far this year, Sting has not been one of them. He's the, he's the one guy who dodges the hot potato out of all of this. Once again, you know, he looks like a champion. You don't need to put the belt on him. You need to put it on people that don't look like the champion so you know they're the champion. <laughs> Sting says that Jarrett will go to the Great American Bash in a body bag. Jarrett swings at Sting with the belt, but he misses. Sting beats up Jarrett all around the ring before putting him in the deathlock on the rampway. Sting then gets a guitar, whacks Jarrett with it, knocking him off the ramp. <laughs> this, I can't think of a single way that any of this booking makes sense. Even if the match this Sunday was Jeff versus Sting and Sting was the Hill champion, it still wouldn't make any fucking sense. <laughs> this was such a brutal burial of Jarrett. Why yeah. is this guy the fucking champ, and he's going to win on Sunday. Like, why Why is this guy your champion? And I get it if it's like, oh, okay, he's like, he's a, he's a little bitch. He always sort of like ekes by the skin of his teeth. He gets beat up. He can't survive in a fair fight. But then why is he not cutting a promo? Why is he not getting some screen time? We only see yeah. this guy get his ass kicked. Yeah, and you didn't even mention the great spot where Sting punches Jarrett. Jarrett falls onto the announcer's table. And breaks the damn table. <laughs> yeah. Like, Sting didn't power bomb him through the table. He didn't slam him through the table. He punched him. Jared fell backwards. And the great craftsmanship of these WCW <laughs> announce tables, Sting, uh, Jared shattered the table simply by falling on it, which brought to mind some questions I had about a particular announcer or the character of an announcer sitting at that table and the table being able to support such a uh, force. But I'm not going to go there because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be positive here on the satellite of hate, Brian. Back from break, EMTs load Jarrett into an ambulance. Eric Bischoff says, that's our champion. Take care of him, which was advice Eric probably should have been given at this time period. <laughs> Back in the arena, Mike Awesome makes his way out to the ring and tells the crowd to shut up. This was hilarious as the crowd was already quiet and did not react to what he said. <laughs> awesome stumbles over a promo about DDP promising to end his career this Sunday. But don't worry, be positive, because although you're going to be a traction after the Great American Bash, I hear they got pretty good nurses that give great sponge baths. Awesome then introduces the woman that everybody came to see, Kimberly. Kimberly makes her entrance, and my dad takes out his camera again. <laughs> Hancock makes her entrance and tells Kim that they will fight under one condition. Hancock makes Kim sign a hold harmless release. Kim laughs and signs the release. Kim says that she can't wait to see who Hancock's partner is. Hancock then gives the diamond cutter, and out comes DDP. Kim mentions her restraining order, but DDP tells Kim that she just signed her rights away which I'm pretty sure isn't the way restraining orders work. <laughs> Hancock and Kim then start off and get tied up in the ropes, so DDP spanks Kim. Kim poses for the crowd and calls the response pathetic, so then Hancock dances, but Kim shoves her down. Hancock then rips the M off of Kim's top. The announcers are selling this as some erotic cat fight, but the audience is just totally dead. Hancock slaps Awesome and then rushes to tag in DDP. 
DDP comes in with a flying clothesline. They brawl a little bit, and Awesome lands a mule kick. Awesome follows up with a German suplex, and the crowd chants DDP. Awesome splashes DDP and goes out and gets a table. He gets it set up, comes back inside. Awesome body slams DDP, and then goes to the top and hits his frog splash for a two. Awesome goes for an awesome bomb through the table, but instead Miss Hancock gets in the way and teases pulling off her skirt. This allows DDP to hit the diamond cutter for the win. For whatever reason, this was the longest match on the show up to this point. <laughs> um, just as confusing, it's, it was it was a confusing and boring match, which that's when Russo booking is the worst, when it's just dull and the audience doesn't care. They clearly thought that these two teasing us, like, I think it's just that it was so confusing that the audience really had no idea what they were getting in for. Like, was this going to be a one-on-one match? Oh, it's a mixed tag. Oh, DDP's here. It was just very hard to follow. And then when the match itself happened, it was just slow and boring. Mm, see that now, now, Brian, I'm, I'm going to have to... Uh counter you because you know you're spreading a lot of uh, fake news up here on the satellite so <laughs> we're having uh, a lot of disagreements are, on this one here <laughs> these are erroneous claims you're making uh yes this wasn't this wasn't flare steamboat you know this wasn't even rock hogan but uh you know the, the old saying in the land of the blind the one-eyed man is king well in this case in the land of russo booking kimberly page is our queen brian man you know i, I may be biased but uh, i dug the bit at the beginning with the hold harmless agreement, even though it, none of it makes any sense. Like none of it has any grounding in reality, but I, I dug the little, uh, the reveal when uh Keebler does the, or Hancock does the uh, diamond cutter sign and DDP comes out. And, and I, I imagine a young Brian man wearing his DDP shirt was probably uh, thrilled about <laughs> this. It woke him up after the past 30 minutes of wrestling <laughs> that he had to endure. I mean, uh, I'll say, yeah. it's rare to say this on a Russo show, I would have taken more talking and less wrestling. This match was way too long, and it was not properly set up ahead of time. Yeah, they, they, that's that's the big issue with this, is they had plenty of opportunities to clearly define what this conflict was going to be, and if you want to be realistic about it, like I think they could have stretched this out. Like This could have been at least a two- or three-week thing where, yep. you know, uh, Kimberly is antagonizing Miss Hancock, and finally it gets to the point where you know she had she's had all she can stand, she can't stand no more, uh, and and she wants to face Kimberly in the, in the ring, and, and we get to this mixed tag match. But no, Russo being Russo, we had to microwave this thing, and you know it it was microwave popcorn, Brian. But uh, microwave popcorn can be delicious at times. Microwave popcorn is delicious all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like I'm I'm with you. I think she was really good. Like one of those people that, you know, like is is you know surprisingly good. I though for me, once again, it's like the misuse of one of my favorite wrestlers in Mike Awesome, uh, someone that I've always yeah. like. I thought his stuff at ECW and obviously FMW is just incredible against Tanaka, and then but like to watch him in this run and then of course you know later on like it's just you know it's a sad it's a tragic kind of later half of that guy's career yeah because that character that that muscle mr muscles that she calls him like that could have been anybody yeah you know horace hogan could have played that part and still had the same effect yeah and it's like oh i wish he was just like i really wish like all it is a lot of talent in this locker room like you know you i forgot Mm -hmm. how many how many people like oh yeah that guy's there that guy's there like you always for you know like you think about oh there's that 
the mass exodus of all the really great wrestlers. But like, no, they had great wrestlers right up until the end. It's just not used correctly. So, Nate, do you remember how this DDP Mike Awesome feud started? Like the reason why they're gonna have a match? All right, it's been a while, and then you know the space time continuum is different up here. But I'm going to say, didn't Mike Awesome injure Champagne Canyon? <laughs> yes. Four weeks ago, Mike Awesome almost killed Chris Canyon. He threw him off the top of a cage, and he, yes. in storyline, broke his neck and might never walk again. However, I guess Russo got tired of that two weeks into it and made it this whole, like, Kimberly divorce storyline. So this was, our, this was the go-home angle. And the crazy thing is, at the pay-per-view on Sunday, Canyon returns and turns heel. <laughs> <laughs> on DDP. Yes. Siding with the guy who almost broke his neck. Um, so if we know that's the finish we're going to, why didn't we do something with Canyon here? It just, it, it's, it's, again, it just doesn't make any sense. Oh, so so is, is this the uh, genesis of Positively Canyon? Vit- yeah, we're getting to Positively, uh, I think. I think, yeah. Chris Canyon, another guy. Another, uh, another diamond in the rough in this locker room. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's like free jazz, you know, the way he writes. It's just like he's a master of, like, you know, you think it's going to go this way, but then it goes the other way, and that's why we love it. It's about the clean finishes you don't book. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Listen, bro, you don't understand, bro. Kimberly is divorcing DDP, and she's got a restraining order. Don't worry about Kenya. We'll get to him later. But this is about Kimberly Page and Mike Awesome. It's going to be great, bro. I, like, I, I really... I'm really happy that, you know, we have these moments to reflect on when someone was like, here you go, Vince Rosso. Here's an open checkbook. Go nuts. <laughs> Make TV. Because, I don't know. Mind you, he's he's booking again, right? Like, Aero Lucha. Is he? Yeah, Aero Lucha, him and Conan are, are doing it Yeah, together. I did see that. Yeah. Um, well, guys got to eat. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it, like, I... You know, and I, you know, once again, everyone says like him with an editor is is something. You know, obviously here there was no one editing, no, yeah. no one had picked up a, a red pen in a long time at WCW. Yeah. Uh, but like you know, maybe with Conan kind of also there, it'll kind of restrain some of his more uh, <laughs> I don't know uh, f- artistic flares. So you see, so you're saying Vince. Russo is like a great freestyle rapper. He just needs a Rick Rubin to to yes. to mold him, or or just plays. <laughs> yeah, or like uh, what was that guy Ross Robertson from uh, who the guy who produced like Corn and all those bands, and he produced <laughs> Vanilla Ice and put a chair on his throat and made him sing vocals with a chair on his neck or something. Oh. Yeah, maybe he needs someone like that. <laughs> Backstage, Pamela is outside Hulk Hogan's locker room, and she says that Hogan told her there's no way Hulk Hogan will fight Horace tonight. Back from break, Horace Hogan makes his way out with new hardcore champion Eric Bischoff. The massive steel cage is being lowered around the ring as Bischoff gloats about Hulk Hogan not competing tonight and announces that Horace has the night off early. Horace and Eric high-five like a pair of dweebs, but the NWO music plays. Nate, I thought we were never going to hear it again. I was wrong. The NWO music plays, and out comes 
Hollywood Hogan. Hogan says that Hulk wasn't going to wrestle, but he didn't say anything about Hollywood. It was wordplay all along. (laughs) Uh, I love how this show, Brian, has become more than a, a journey into pro wrestling but a journey into the psyche of one Hulk Hogan because over the course (laughs) of these episodes, we've seen three distinct personalities. We've seen Hulk Hogan, we've seen Terry Bollea, and now we've seen Hollywood Hulk Hogan. And it's just like, that kind of thing works for McFoley, but not not for you, Hulk. (laughs) Because they're all the same fucking character. Well, he's laying the groundwork for the Gawker trial, like all the way back then, you know? (laughs) Like he's establishing that there's multiple characters here. At work all the time. <laughs> all with different penis sizes. You don't want to know how big Hollywood is, brother. <laughs> oh, my God. I don't, I'm glad that didn't have to come out in court. <laughs> so Hollywood demands they lower the cage, which means it is time once again for the Hogan Bump Challenge. Uh, let's get ready to rumble. Hogan. Every week here on the show, we take a wager on how many bumps professional wrestler Hulk Hogan will take in a professional wrestling match. <laughs> now, it, he, he, he's going against uh, a family member. You know, it's a nephew. It's, it's Hor- he wants to make Horace look good. Uh, that, that mindset actually did help Mike Awesome a couple weeks ago when they had their match. So what do we think? Damien, you're our guest. You can wager first. How many bumps do you think Hulk Hogan will take in this professional wrestling match? Well, I'm... A fan of the show, gentlemen. I have to say, I've missed the show during the hiatus. So now that it's back, uh, I, I am an honored, honored to be an early guest on it. <laughs> so, but I've been preparing for this because I don't think I've ever gotten to take part in a bump challenge before. But I have listened to many people take part in a bump challenge. So I was sitting there with a pen and paper. So maybe <laughs> I should not go first. Uh, but. Since I am the guest and guests do go first, uh, I believe there were none. Ooh. Okay. He he has come. He's seasoned. He understands how the game works. He's saying zero. So, Nate, you've got to pick something other than zero. What do you think? I was going to say the, the uh, hashtag HBC is strong in this one. Um, <laughs> see, I could go historical here and, and give the first ever negative bump. <laughs> but, uh... You know, just just to uh, just to keep the game sporting, I'm gonna say Hulk Hogan in this big nitro in Atlanta against his uh, nephew takes one whopping bump inside the steel cage. I mean, just one, just one for his kinfolk. Just give him yeah. one, buddy. So Hollywood rushes the ring and gets beat down as the cage lowers. Of course, this is Hogan, so he's walking from turnbuckle to turnbuckle as he is getting punched in the back. Hogan fights back as the audience chants, "Boring." Hogan takes off his belt and chokes out his nephew, Horace. They then brawl around the ring, because this was essentially WCW's knockoff Hell in a Cell. Hollywood gets a chair, but Horace kicks the chair into his face. Rather than take a bump, Hogan backs into the cage and slides down. (laughs) Horace misses a chair shot, and Hollywood comes back with punches. The two men get back in the ring, and Hollywood continues to beat down with a chair. Hollywood then puts the chair on Horace's face, hits the leg drop for the win. This match went three minutes, and Hogan did not take a single fucking bump. Damien is our winner. You were prepared. You had your eagle eye out. 
After the match, the cage door is unlocked and Kidman rushes the ring. Hollywood doesn't sell a thing and he throws Hogan out of, uh, and he throws Kidman out of the ring and through a table. So yeah, guys, um, Hogan's career is on the line this Sunday, and they didn't do a single thing to make you think that he is in any jeopardy at any point. <laughs> this was I I get that Hogan has his fucking ego thing and he's got him protected every second of every day, and there isn't a guy like Vince McMahon there to explain to him, like, hey, actually in the long run, this will actually result in more money, but cool. He got to fucking stroke his ego on national TV for 10 minutes and, and make everyone else look like a fool. And guess what? No one bought this fucking pay-per-view that he would have... Like, he's he's literally taking money out of his own pocket when he does shit like this. This was... Uh, this this just was... You know, Damien winning the uh, Hogan Bump Challenge aside, this was... This was a waste of my TV time. Like, A, nobody wants to see a sub five-minute cage match. And B, I don't think any time, anywhere in the history of, of mankind has anybody said, you know what I want in, uh, in the final hour of my wrestling TV? I want to see Horace Hogan in a big-time match. No, and it's like, I know that we're talking, and you know, I like to put my guest booker hat on sometimes, but like, this is conceivably, Flair and Hogan are both putting their careers on the line that night. Wouldn't it make sense if Bischoff and Russo come out gloating about that, bragging about how this is the last time you're going to see these guys, and just put them in a tag match together? Just have Hulk and and Flair against uh, Kidman and uh, uh, Kidman and uh, fucking David Flair or something like that, or maybe it's a handicap thing. Mm. But it's just so crazy. This is conceivably. If the heels get their way, this is the last time you'll see either of these guys, and they don't mention it. They don't cut a promo about it. Flair and Hogan don't mention it. It's it, that is a huge stipulation for no one to mention, or the fact that Hogan has, if he wins, he gets a world title shot. Like no one was mentioning any of these things. He Russo just wanted to make sure a lot of people got paid. You know, he knew some lean wow. years were coming up. And he's like, fuck, I got to make sure people have nest eggs. <laughs> Damien has completely changed the narrative on Vince Russo. You know, he's not an incompetent booker who loves hearing the sound of his own voice. He is a, a benevolent boss that, that wants to make sure that everybody gets to eat. Uh, you, you, you completely changed my mind about one Vince Russo, uh, brother Damien. Well, you saw his tweets over the holidays. Like, he, he looks out for the working person. You know, that's his goal in life. <laughs> You know, he didn't want anyone working on Christmas. That's all his TNA run was. was how can I swindle this uh, this oil-rich family out of their money and give it to these hard-working wrestlers? He's kind of like Robin Hood. Yes. He is. He's exactly Robin Hood. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, bro, the rich have too much money, so what I'm going to do is run their businesses into the ground yeah. and give that money back to the poor, bro. He was trying, like, maybe he's from the future, and he's gone back in time Terminator style, <laughs> and he's trying to prevent Donald Trump's introduction to his demo with WrestleMania, you know, by bankrupting Vince McMahon, and then he, you know, was like, oh, fuck it, I'll just bankrupt Ted Turner instead. As he put the wrong company out of business. Yeah, he put yeah, the wrong company so out of Vince business. Vince Russo... Vince Russo is Barry Allen, and he tried to go back to correct one thing and ended up screwing up another thing. Exactly. Although, who knows? Maybe in the alternate timeline, it was like fucking Ted Nugent main eventing <laughs> Super Brawl 2006, and Ted Nugent would be present. So who knows? Maybe it actually was, uh, was a little bit better. Sting versus Steve Bannon at Clash of the Champions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So backstage, Ric Flair cuts a promo while Pamela just held a mic. This was not an interview. Pamela is just, woo, Atlanta by God, Georgia. Is this the home of WCW? Do we have a steel cage with a locked door? Do we have Flair, woo, versus Russo? I'm not worried about a thing, Pamela. I'm the dirtiest player in the game. And today, Russo, you're going to bleed, you're going to sweat, woo, and you're going to pay the price of a wrestling, woo, lifetime. Come on, guys. Elsewhere, Vince Russo yells at David Flair on his cell phone for not arriving at the building yet. Kevin Nash is shown lacing up his boots despite having already come out in his gear earlier in the show. Russo makes his way out as the announcers plug WCW Magazine. Ric Flair comes out with his family while Russo acts nervous in the cage. The bell rings and Rick is grinning from ear to ear. They lock up and Russo actually hits a shoulder block. As Russo celebrates, Rick charges at him in the corner. Russo follows up with a mule kick and then Ric Flair actually took a back body drop off a chop from Russo. <laughs> that, that's, the, that's the line between Flair and Hogan. Hogan won't bump for his own blood. Ric Flair taking <laughs> bumps for fucking Vince Russo. What followed then was just Ric Flair having a match with a broomstick. He did all the work here, did all of his greatest hits, and Russo was just bumping all over the place. At this point, Vince's chest is now beat red from all the chops. You gotta give him credit for the punishment he was taking here. David Flair then emerges from under the ring. He was there all along, but Rick sees him and begins beating up on him as well. So Russo then knocks out the referee. Russo tries to escape the cage, but Reed bites his fingers. Rick rips off David's shirt and starts chopping him all around the ring. Back in the ring, Russo sets up a ladder and tries to escape through a hole in the top of the cage. This leads Flair and Russo to brawl to the top of the cage. Russo takes some chops up there before trying to escape, but Rick stomps on his hand, sending Russo crashing to the mat. Flair comes back in the ring and places Russo in the figure four. Now, rather than tap out instantly, as any non-wrestler should, Vince Russo instead stays in the hold for about a fucking minute. The announcers have to sell Russo as some sort of Iron Man for being able to withstand this pain. <laughs> In reality, someone in the production just missed their cue because then the mysterious red liquid falls from the ceiling, covering Rick. What is keeping Russo alive? I think David Flair pulling his arm is going to add pressure to the figure four. The red of the new blood drenches the nature boy Rick Flair. David then puts the figure four on his father as Russo chokes him out. The referee comes to and counts the pin for Russo. So your winner by pinfall, Vince Russo. I'll say this, guys. Uh, I don't think this was the worst thing of the sh on the show, and it was a hell of a lot more entertaining than the match that Flair would have with his son at the pay-per-view that Sunday. Um, it just It's crazy that you would throw so much away, like... This was the first time they ever used this, like, mock Hell in a Cell. And for it to just sort of, like, just be there and not be built up, like, that was kind of a, an odd thing. But I, I know it's easy to hate this and hate on it because it was Russo pinning Flair and everything. But honestly, this probably should have been the match at the pay-per-view rather than tossed away uh, randomly on Nitro. How the referee not see the blood? You know, like, like wakes up, like, and still is like, oh, like, how can that not be a no contest at that point? Like, okay, like, you know what? <laughs> We're just going to call this match. There's obviously something fucking crazy has happened because I was unconscious <laughs> and now I'm covered in blood. But he's like wakes up and just counts the pinfall. I know that's very <laughs> rudimentary wrestling stuff, but 
still. Like that, well, this was one of the ones that I was really taken aback by. Well, speaking of rudimentary, one of the crazy things was like, this didn't close the show. So they actually had to, and I, I remember when I was there live for this, they had to remove this fucking uh, ring apron that is just covered now. It's just like it's just like gallons of this red blood that's like sloshing all around, and they somehow have to get it out of the arena because they got to do one more segment to close off the show. I recently went to Cage of Death at CZW, and at the end of it, their canvas looked like that, and it was no mysterious red liquid. <laughs> See the the thing with this though, guys, that I I do think I agree with Brian that this would have worked better on the pay per view, and I actually did not have a problem with this. My issue is if this were the only instance on this show where we had all this craziness, where we had all this overbooking, I think it it would be fine. I don't think it'd be great, but I think it'd be fine if this were the only isolated incident of all of this Russo throw stuff against the wall and let's see if it sticks. But because we are watching a show where we've already seen Terry Funk and Eric Bischoff, we've already seen Sting win the title. Oh, wait, no, he didn't. We've already seen, you know, an an unannounced mixed tag match. We've already seen, you know, the tag team match earlier with Chronic and uh, Perfection and and the event Chuck Palumbo that had all that Ernest Miller tomfoolery. Like, it just accentuates the craziness of this match. Like, I think... Vince Russo, this is where the editor could have came into play because it's like, yeah, if you're going to do this, you can't do everything else. You know, it's either this or that, not this and that and that and that too. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I didn't hate this segment, but by this point, I felt very much like that uh, ring mat that night in Atlanta. I was just <laughs> oversaturated by what Russo had thrown no, at it's me. Like, <laughs> if this thing had been on pay-per-view, and maybe it could have gone twice as long, could have had a little bit more of a structure, because that's the, the tough thing with WCW at this time period is their TV shows are so fast-paced, and the, show, and the matches are so short and clunky, and they just try to do so many things all at once that it's impossible to follow. And then you go to the pay-per-views, and they've got these really boring 17-minute just straight-up matches because they put all their hotshot shit on TV and don't save anything for the pay-per-views. So if this had been on the pay-per-view and it had been given 20 minutes and maybe you could actually let David shine a little bit and there's a little more back and forth, but no, it, it's, it was this nine minutes and... As far as the show goes, as far as just a, a, an isolated stunt, I would say it was probably one of the better things on the show. So the announcers recap the finish of the previous match, and Madden accidentally uses the word blood, which Tony is quick to correct him on. <laughs> Nash makes his entrance for the main event as Tony does a final plug for the Great American Bash, reminding us that it could be Flair's last match, it could be Hogan's last match, and that Russo and Bischoff has, have promised an announcement that will change the face of wrestling forever. You know, it's just a shame no one could have mentioned any of that before now. Nash awaits his opponents for the night, and out comes Russo with the entire New Blood. Russo reminds Nash that if any member of the New Blood beats Nash, his world title shot is gone, and thus I guess there's just no main event for the show on Sunday. Keep in mind the world champion has also been put in the hospital. Disco Inferno goes in first and gets pinned after a side slam in nine seconds. Chris Candido then runs in and he gets powerbombed. Johnny the Bull gets a powerbomb too. The referee then just counts the mat three times and considers it a pinfall on both men. Nash did not pin either of them. Big Vito runs in and takes a powerbomb. Tony yells, he doesn't have to pin them. Ray Jr. comes in and gets instantly killed. Then all the members of the New Blood run in and Nash gets beaten down. 
Goldberg then comes down. He helps take out the new blood. They're working together. They clear the ring. Bischoff runs down and tells Goldberg that he'll suspend him on Thunder. Goldberg tells Bischoff, though, that his ass is next if he gets suspended. Um, Yeah, great way to just kill every single member of the fucking roster here. They did a lot on this episode of Nitro, but one thing they did not do was anything to make me want to watch the Great American Bash. Uh, This show fucking (laughs) sucked. I'm sure live, I thought it was great. I got to see all my favorites in person. A lot happened, but... Man, I I really fucking hated this show, Nate, and and this was a tough this is a tough first one to come back on. Yeah, uh, you know you mentioned the Great American Bash, and that just makes me sad. Like this is the go home show to what has traditionally, you know, in WCW and the NWA before that, been one of the company's major shows, something that you look forward to, and seeing this as the way we go into it with Kevin Nash single-handedly taking out most of the, the new blood, you know, seeing that Ric Flair match, seeing that Hulk Hogan match, seeing a lot of things that didn't get you invested or hyped to see the pay-per-view and actually pay money for this show. It, it was disheartening. And so, yeah, I, I think overall this was this the worst show we've seen. Mm, I, w- I, don't, I wouldn't say it's the worst, but it's it's certainly in that category. It's it's like the lower third of uh, the, the Nitros we've reviewed in 2000. Uh, you know, the, the saving graces, of course, being uh, that man called Sting, uh, little man <laughs> in the audience, and uh, our queen, Kimberly Page. The, those are the, the, the saving graces of this televised wrestling spectacle. I just realized, Nate, that like Vince Russo kind of kills like everything you love right like you love wcw he killed it then you love tna and then he shows up there and he kills it you you gotta like you gotta be gunning for this guy on some level yeah and then he he went on uh i think it was uh last year he went on and cut a uh quasi or maybe not even quasi but i'm not it, saying it was quasi certainly racist uh promo yeah, a promo against the Atlanta TSA operator. So he's he's attacking the city of my birth as well. Wow. So I don't, I don't know what Vince Russo's problem is with me. Why, why can't he <laughs> leave just, you alone? Just let me live. Yeah, just leave Nate the fuck yeah, I, alone, I feel like, Vince. Yeah, I feel like uh, like Tyrese. Like, Vince Russo, what more <laughs> do you want from me? Well, we've already established that he's had time travel powers now. So I'd be worried that he's going to go back and kill some of your favorite musicians before they're able to put out some of your favorite records or something. Like, he seems to be going after all your favorite cultural institutions. Oh, that'd be terrible. Like, there's no more outcasts, <laughs> there's no more Prince. It's like you go back so, and all of a sudden, like, Prince is produced by Vince Russo, and it's just, like, the worst <laughs> music anyone's ever heard. Hey, I mean, Vince Russo <laughs> did try to kill Prince, though, earlier this year on, on this promotion. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> Uh, yes, yes, the, the the great Prince Iakea. Uh, well, we established we can use some Prince Iakea tonight. Yeah, well, yeah, we've established that like he has the ability to prevent anyone's talents from shining through. <laughs> so he could have been the the wet blanket that could have stopped Prince from being the creative genius he was. God, listen, Prince. You got to get rid of that falsetto, bro. Nobody's going to buy you as a sex symbol when you're singing that high, bro. The ladies aren't going to dig it. 
Why are you wearing those jeans with the with the butt cut out? That's not cool, bro. You're never gonna get laid, bro. Russo would essentially be the the club owner in Purple Rain, who just constantly telling him no one wants to hear his shit. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> Look here, kid. You gotta you gotta play the hits. You gotta play what people want, not the shit you want to hear, kid. So would that make Eric no. Bischoff Morris Day? I was just because I would love be. that if Eric Bischoff were Morris Day. Uh. I mean, who would Eric Bischoff be in this nightmarish reality that we've been dreaming of? <laughs> like this is this is that timeline uh, we're talking about with Ted Nugent's president. So, you know, it could get worse. <laughs> I just want to see Eric Bischoff in the time. <laughs> That'd be beautiful. Oh. Um, now, yo, imagine Vince Russo became president. Oof, oof, oof! That silenced the room. I. Pivoting quickly away from that to more positive thoughts. Nate, you said a few things you liked on this show. Uh, even though we all kind of uh, across the board hated this thing, we do all have to pick a silver lining, just one thing that we completely unvarnished loved on this episode. Damien, you're, I guess, I'll let you go first. What was your silver lining for this episode of Nitro? Uh, I'm glad Terry Funk probably got a hefty paycheck and Mike Awesome was making a little bit of money at this time. <laughs> Those are really my silver linings. Other than that, like... You know, it was, I guess, the locker room having that many talented people in it was kind of a silver lining. And winning the bump challenge. I won the fucking bump Yay, challenge. Yeah, there so we go. Silver lining. Oh, see, Brian, I, I got to give honorable mention to uh, a couple things. Uh, first, I want to shout out Hoobie Two Guerrero's attire <laughs> on tonight's show. I thought Hoobie uh, looked like the coolest guy on the program. Uh, I want to shout out uh, Sting's 10 second title reign. Uh, I had a brief. <laughs> glimmer of hope on on this episode that was quickly snuffed out and i also want to shout out the uh the gentleman in front of you uh <laughs> atle and buff bagwell because uh <laughs> he, he certainly had a lituation going on in in the phillips arena that night uh walking around with his shirt all unbuttoned uh but my uh silver lining should come as no surprise because i've been talking about her all show and is the one and only kimberly page i, I enjoy her in these uh, Nitro's we've seen the character work is good even though the story around her doesn't always make sense and I think it's a shame that this like this run in 2000 is pretty much it for her when it comes to wrestling and you know entertainment in general because I don't you know I haven't seen her in any TV or movies since then yeah she was in 40 old virgin and uh besides that yeah I, I yes. think it's it's crazy that maybe if DDP had been a little younger and stuck around WWE a longer when you see her here, it's kind of crazy that she never wound up on camera over there because, I mean, honestly, she was better than some of the W. Like, I think she's a better promo and everything than uh, Tori Wilson. And Tori Wilson got in over there and stayed around a long time. So, yeah, you know, yeah. it's a shame because I think they could have done something with her uh, over there. But I think she was, by that point, I think she was just over wrestling and didn't want to, to be in it anymore. Um, but for me, my silver lining, um, maybe we're viewing this whole Jeff... Jarrett push all wrong maybe he's not supposed to be an effective heel maybe they're giving him the Daniel Bryan push and he's actually a baby face and in the end we're <laughs> supposed to cheer for him because we feel so bad for the way they book him so my my silver lining is Jeff Jarrett's excellent baby face work on this week's episode <laughs> is is Bob Mould gone by this point from the creative no, he's team? still there. I think Bob Mould was there till uh, till the end. Uh, oh, that's my wrong. silver line. hundred percent. That's my silver line. Okay. Greatest songwriter, one of the greatest <laughs> songwriters of our generation, who did record a record at Prince's studio, by the way, that has never seen the light of day. 
but uh, mm. he, he is, was writing in that lo- in that writing room at that point. So that's my silver lining. <laughs> well, th- th- this brings up a, a, a question here as we're wrapping up with you, uh, Damien. Just as Bob Mould took that that brief, uh, you know, that brief time with WCW, would you do the same thing with WWE if you knew it was only for like three to four months? Uh, yeah, like I, I, yeah, definitely. Like who, who, you know, you've done it. Like, like you lived out the every every fan's ultimate dream, which is to like, you know, have your uh, dream shattered by uh, Triple H personally. <laughs> Or by Vince McMahon personally, or by like, you know. So yeah, I would love. I would. I would relish in the experience of getting the chance to kind of like, uh, you know, get get in there and meet those people and kind of see what it's like and and you know and just as like, I naively thought I could change the music world. I'm sure I would go in there and naively think I could bring some amazing <laughs> new ideas to the table. But I'm sure that I would also. <laughs> You know, much like I did in the music, yeah, have those uh, smashed on the rocks. Damien, thank you so much for for stopping by, uh, coming on the satellite. I feel like this is an official Brian and Nate production now that you have christened it. And and congratulations on on winning the bump challenge on your first uh, your first go. Well, I tell you, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a longtime fan, and I'm very happy the show is back in my earbuds, and I can uh, now walk away here a champion. Damien, th- thank you again. Uh, if people want more of you, uh, where can they find you, including uh, the wrestlers coming up uh, at some point here soon, hopefully? Yeah, absolutely. The wrestlers will be coming out in you know uh, early spring, or by the time you're listening to it, right around the corner, uh, or to this, or maybe it's out already because you're listening to this, you're binge listening to all of them at once, so maybe it's already out and you're like... You're watching it, so uh, you can send me feedback at Left for Damien on various forms of social media. Uh, I do a podcast called Turn It a Punk, and on that podcast, uh, I interview people about how they heard about punk music, uh, and uh, I have a lot of wrestlers on there. Matt Cross was on recently. Uh, Brody King was on recently. Rocky Romero was on recently. Uh, in the past, I've had Jimmy Havoc. Uh, Robbie Brookside, and and I gotta say, if you are a fan of m- punk music or wrestling, you gotta listen to the Robbie Brookside one. And then, of course, MVP has been on the show uh, three times now. And my God, if you have not heard MVP's story, you are missing out on the greatest story in professional <laughs> wrestling. Um, uh, but yeah, that's it. And I, I once again, uh, very much appreciate you guys having me on the show. And uh, you know, anytime I get to talk to. Uh, you know, Brother Nate and Brother Man is a good day in my books. That's great stuff, Brother Damien. Again, you know, on behalf of Brother Man and myself, uh, any day you can beam up to the satellite of hate that. That's a good day for us. And uh, you know, I could think of no better way than to to reengage with our mission uh, than to uh, bring on the, the honorary third member of, of this crew. So, uh you know, appreciate you having you on, brother, and uh, I look forward to reconnecting with you again because I'm I'm gonna invoke my rematch clause for the Hogan Bump Challenge. So uh, you've got that to look forward to. Well, and I I'm not saying that you've ever in bide in this particular herb, but a certain herb is being legalized up here in Toronto, and I would love to do a live satellite of hate <laughs> in a cloud of haze in the T dot one day. So. <laughs> I'm not saying either you and Bide, but when you come to Canada, it will be legal. So, you know, 
That is the that is the best offer we've received from uh, any guests so far. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I got a spot picked out and everything. So we just can't say enough for Damien stopping by. He always makes time for us, which I appreciate. Um, but Nate, you've you know we've talked about our thoughts, but I mentioned I wasn't the only one who was here. There was another person who attended the show with me. Yeah, Brian, and, and I don't want to throw shade on Damien or any of the other great guests that we've had on this program, but uh, if you'll allow me to indulge my inner Tony Schiavone for a minute, because this next guest is arguably the most important guest in the history of this show, because if not for him, you might not even be here, Brian. I don't know if a might has to do with it. I definitely would not be here. That's just <laughs> science. But no, we're being joined by uh, the man who was to my left the whole show, who's uh, digital camera made several appearances. It's it's my dad. It's my dad, James. Welcome aboard the satellite. Well, this is fun. Thank you for having me. Oh, uh, this, this is this is amazing. This is a a, a wonderful moment right here. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's leading up to when we're gonna have Mr. Milton on here eventually, Nate. Uh, but uh, but yeah, thank you so much for for coming on. And I guess just the first thought I have to say: here we are, seventeen years later, in reflection. What were you thinking, bringing me to this show? Well, was this was this our first show or the second? I think one? this was our third. Oh, third, okay. Because we saw the one where Goldberg did an appearance. Yes. With Megadeth, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you left out of your and you left out of your skin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You always say that I left out of my skin. I was doing the diamond cutting. Oh thing. well. I wasn't well, scared yeah. by the pyro, and to this day, you won't believe me. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, but I, I was just watching this um, recently, and it was, it kind of brought it all back, because um, you know I'd been in the music industry before, so I was used to that arena and that, you know, crowd, I guess. But it was, it was dramatic. It was intense. Mm. And I guess, like, what was the first thing when we first got there? What was the drop-off for you? Because the show we'd gone before this was at the Georgia Dome, mm-hmm. massive arena. Even though they only had it about. 40% full right. <laughs> at this point. And then the next time we're at the Phillips Arena, much smaller, and even it's not fully, fully right. packed. And there was no Megadeth performance. There was no Rap is Crap performance. Mm-hmm. It was this show that you just sat through. <laughs> I, I'm not sure. Watching it now, I was kind of amazed by just how many big names were there. Mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, of course, I lived, you know, through that, through you. So, mm-hmm. you know, that didn't mean any, I was not what you would call a, a wrestling devotee on my own time, but, uh, <laughs> um, it was just amazing, you know, that the people that, you know, Goldberg, you know, Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair, I mean, it was, it was a star studded night. Well, I'm wondering, Mr. Man, in, in, in terms of wrestling, and then you just kind of gave me a perfect segue. Like, I understand that this was something that you and Brian kind of bonded over. Were you a fan previous to this? Were, were, were you somebody that watched pro wrestling back in the day, or was this something you suffered through just for your son? Uh, I didn't really watch it beforehand because, you know, when I was Brian's age at at this time, I I believe wrestling really stunk. Um, you know, it was on TBS on like Sunday at four 30 in the afternoon. So it wasn't really a part of my thing. Um, I did it just to, to spend time with Brian and Brian is such a visual person, you know, it's the movies, film (laughs) and this, you know, um, I kind of remember my mother, that you know brian stayed with a lot 
being very concerned that she didn't know if Brian <laughs> knew if it was fake or not. And I'm like, eh, yeah, that's not the point. You know, the point's the stories and the personalities. But yeah, he realizes that, you know, this isn't real. Um, but it was fun. It was fun to, to have something that was just us. Because none of the rest of the family really had any. There's like, oh, Brian's going to grow out of that. Ha ha ha. Um, <laughs> you know, and and it was just something we shared um, at the time, which was great. You talk about like the big names on the show that uh, you know you and Brian watched, and and you you suffered through twice for our benefits, sir. Um, <laughs> but uh, at, just as an event, you know, just going to Phillips Arena and and seeing what crowd was there in in various uh, states of dress and various states of sobriety. Uh, yeah. How, how how was the experience actually in the arena when you were there? Um, it was actually like I said before. I was did some work in the music business before that it was actually more mannered than that mm. um it didn't look like people were getting as hammered as you would say at a <laughs> reo speedwagon show um kind of thing which you would have to but um the one thing that that, that you know like a rock concert you have a beginning middle and end but with this stuff it's all scripted so when they go to a commercial they all just kind of like you know prance around themselves on the the ring and that was the, the one thing for me was just like you know wow these guys really don't hate each other you know <laughs> yeah even you know in the the terms of the show i mean right. it's, it, it was fun that was fun to watch um but the whole the whole experience was very surreal mm. um that people would get this emotionally invested in something that we hope they would realize the outcome was already predetermined. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and and I'm curious, just like kind of going down the list of things that we saw on this show, mm -hmm. the first thing I got to ask about is uh, there's a moment where Terry Funk threatens to, mm. to put his bare ass in Eric Bischoff's face. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you noticed this, but I remembered uh, in the crowd, you are shown uh, taking out your digital camera. Uh, what were you hoping to capture? <laughs> oh, that, uh, that very moment, yeah. You know, you don't want to miss that. Um, I wonder if I still have that tape somewhere around. Um, that would be a unique perspective on the whole thing. Um, yeah. And, you know, I don't I didn't actually remember when I was watching this again. I didn't actually remember those guys at the very beginning, you know, the big mm. the big corporate type people. Um, yeah, that, that that was something that escaped me. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and and at, at the time when we were there, what was it like? Because um, I was obviously very excited, uh, but I just wanted to get your perspective. I was a massive Goldberg fan. You and I had gone to visit him uh, and I got his autograph uh, much better evening than the time we went to get Sid Vicious's right. autograph and lost your car uh, that's a different story uh, yeah. the time. Uh, from your perspective how excited was I to see the return of Bill Goldberg oh I think you were very excited so was I I mean he's he's a excellent performer I mean um, and he also to me and, and this is a little bit of an age thing he kind of seems like a nice guy you know um kevin nash doesn't seem to be a nice guy um you know but goldberg looks like a nice guy and when we met him and got your picture made and we got t-shirts from it 
Nate, have you seen the T-shirt yet? Uh, um, I have not. Now, now uh, I need to see this. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's. I wish I still had it. Um, I've got mine. Um, but we <laughs> <Yeah>, do. <laughs> <laughs> but he seems to be a nice guy. Um, probably you know, meet him for coffee kind of guy. Well, one of the things that Brian and I uh, do on this show, you know, we, we kind of chronicle this year in, in WCW, which was uh, kind of the beginning of the end for this company that would be uh, <laughs> out of business the next year. And I'm wondering, as somebody, you know, that has, has dealt in the music business and, and kind of, you know, being able to get a sense of a crowd, get a sense of an audience, being there in the moment and then watching back, did you kind of see that this was a company that was still – you know, a big deal, but was on that on the edge of kind of going under, or or did it seem like business as usual? Um, kind of going under, kind of, because when you start off the entire evening with those two guys, who was it? Um, uh, Russo and Bischoff. Yeah, you know, with those guys yattering on for ten minutes. <laughs> I mean, that's not really exciting. You know, even <laughs> in retrospect, it's certainly not. But even there, you're going okay. Let's get on with it. You know, right. Let's bring out a chair. Let's have some mayhem. Um, but yeah, I don't really. I, mean, I didn't follow the stories behind it to really be as up on it. But you know, we were there. It's electric. Um, it, it's totally electric. And and one other just crazy moment from the show when Vince Russo is in a figure four by Ric Flair and. Gallons of blood, red, oh, yeah, the, yeah. the red liquid, as they had to legally call it on on air. What what were you thinking <laughs> when that happened? Because they had been doing this on TV for a couple weeks up to that point. But mm. if I had to guess, you probably weren't watching Nitro every single week, or maybe you were. I don't remember. Um, uh, but what, what, what were you thought when that happened? Yeah, when that happened, what what did you think? I'm hoping that it wouldn't get on my clothes. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> I mean we are close enough. I mean we weren't, but like four or five rows back i mean you know i don't want that stuff on me um it was very you know I, my brian's grandfather was an actor and so i came from a dramatic background um and that's all that is i mean it's the entire you know evening is just a play um and with special effects you know with the red liquid and the, the cage and you know stuff like that i mean it was it was fabulous for what it is and what what were you thinking of buying me a jeff jarrett slap nuts t-shirt <laughs> did, I, did, I wear it at, did i buy that i guess you I had did. to yeah, have, guess how you, else would i have gotten it yeah right that's true you know uh, teen, i didn't have money <laughs> yeah that's true that that's probably not my best parenting decision but um <laughs> it looks cool now you know do you still have that shirt <laughs> i don't i don't have any of those old wcw shirts uh. I, I have a goldberg shirt that i bought recently uh, from that time period but none huh. none that i actually still had um but i'm gonna i might regret this but nate you and i we've been going down these podcast roads for about three years now and and I'm just going to stand back for a second. Any questions you just have, <laughs> not about this Nitro, that you want to ask my dad, feel, feel free to. I, I mean, Brian, you know, the, we, we are in dangerous grounds here uh, <laughs> because, you know, you and I have talked a lot. And I, I love that we're, we're getting this opportunity to talk to your dad because, you know, it, now, now you make more sense to me, you know, coming from, uh, <laughs> you know, your grandfather being an actor and your, and your dad being in the music industry. You make more sense to me now. But uh, so I, I guess, you know, you mentioned that uh, some in the family thought that, you know, maybe this is a fad or a phase that uh, young Brian Mann or, or little man, as I called him on this program, uh, was going through. 
And and not to see Brian, you know, having worked in the wrestling business and and you know being on one of the most successful wrestling podcasts in the world today, sir. Uh, I'm, I'm yeah. wondering, you know, what 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 do you make of you know the, this uh, this evolution, this growth from the young man that, that you sat beside in the Phillips Arena to uh, the guy that I'm co-hosting this show with now? Oh, I'm I'm very proud and absolutely not surprised at all. Um, I grew up as a music nut, and I still am. And Brian grew up like I said, visually. And he likes the stories. He likes the visual aspects of stuff. And he's been fortunate to be able to turn that into something he loves, something he can still do, something he can make some amount of money off of, live in New York City, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it came from watching crap like this. Um, (laughs) You know, really. And, um, you know, he's undoubtedly made more money from his beginnings in this than I ever did from music um (laughs) but you do it because you love it and you can't really explain it to anybody that doesn't have that same passion within them and I always could see that with him whereas other people in the family say well he's gonna grow out of it I'm thinking no he's not really um you know it's like I make the story that, you know, I can't stand the Eagles, but I know every word to their songs because I just grew up with it. You know, it was impressed into my head. And I'm sure there's stuff that Brian can recite chapter and verse on that he, you know, is just there, you know, because he was immersed in it. And it was it was gratifying to watch. Um, He took the right stuff away from it. You know, the spectacle and the, the story and the drama and he never believed it for a minute, but he knew what it is and still does, obviously. Right. Um, I'm proud of him. Oh, well, thank you. I, I was hoping, <laughs> I, I, I thought this would go in a more embarrassing uh, uh, path, oh, but no. thank you for all of that. <laughs> um, I got to say, doing this podcast has been like listening to the, the Eagles every week and just remembering the, the worst things. Uh, but it's the big Lebowski. I, I, I will say, one, one last kind of follow-up question. Um, so I was huge into wrestling at this standpoint, and then I kind of, when I went to high school and I got more into film and, and acting, I really stopped. Uh, mm-hmm. And probably from about 2002 to, I'd say, 2009, 2010, I just wasn't watching wrestling. Uh, how upset were you when I started texting you about wrestling again? Oh, I didn't bother me at all. Um, I can understand <laughs> why you probably kind of lessened wrestling's impact in your high school life because you really can't get women to come over and watch (laughs) nitro i don't believe um and if you could you probably don't want them to but um (laughs) you know no it didn't bother me Uh, i kind of thought it was you know maybe a little odd you know it'd be like me going back and listening in some ways to the archies you know (laughs) something that i grew up on but Still, you know, they're not doing anything new, but wrestling obviously has continued, so. Yeah. And, no, and the it, good it, thing it, is, uh, Terry Funk is semi-retired, so if, if there's a, a indie show that he's on, maybe you and Brian could go check it out and, and, and have that digital camera ready and, and relive those memories. That would be fun. I, w- I would enjoy that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he does the bare ass spot anymore, but, you know, we can hope. Uh, we, can we, hope. we can dream. We can dream. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I just got to say thank you for making that terrible parenting decision of taking me to multiple nitros. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, indulging this habit. Um, I, I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, who could have known that when we were sitting there, it would have taken me, you know, all the way to, 
you know, buying Subway sandwiches for the WWE writer's room. There you go. 14 years later. <laughs> <laughs> See? I always had faith in you. <laughs> so as we say goodbye to my dad and thank him for coming on the show, we also want to thank you for completing another experiment with us. If you haven't already, please rate and subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher and pretty much anywhere you find podcasts. If you have feedback for us, you can send it over to keepit2000pod at gmail.com. And if you want more of me, I am at Brian Maxman all over the internet. Any of those terrible social media places, I'm probably there. That's the name to use. Now, Nate, as always, I got to throw it to you, give you the final saying, give that good blessing to hold the people over until our next trial. Yes, uh, and again, we want to send a shout-out to uh, both Mr. Man and also Brother Damien for joining us on the Satellite of Hate this week, as well as the audience. Definitely want to send a shout-out to the listeners for checking us out and for the longtime listeners that have been fans of the Satellite of Hate and Keep It 2000. Uh, we appreciate all the love and support during uh, during our little vacation, I guess you could say. Uh, <laughs> but... One of the things that we always like to do on this show is wrap up with some positive words, something that can send you into the week feeling good. And we talked earlier about Canadian one-hit wonders, Sonique. And that got me thinking about one-hit wonders and, and the joy that they bring us. And it led me to maybe, in my opinion, the greatest one-hit wonder of all time. And that is Mark Morrison's Return to the Mac. And so I'll leave you with the wise words of Mark Morrison as it relates to our experiment this week. You lied to me. All the times that I said I loved WCW, you lied to me. Yes, I tried. Yes, I tried. You lied to me, Vince Russo. Even though you know I'd buy a pay-per-view for you, you lied to me, and I cried. Yes, I cried. But it's the return of the Mac. Yes, the return of the Mac. It's the return of the Mac. You knew that we'd be back. Shape it's in because of bullshit like this. this, this, this.